Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. I almost hate to use the word educational. Charles Staley. And uh, I failed phys ed and English all the way through high school. Phil Stevens. I guess I'm kind of the, uh, the dark force here. And Rob Fortress Fortney. But there really is no secret. Thanks for listening. All right. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, folks. It's Rob Fortress Fortney, former editor at Muscle Mag International, former competitive bodybuilder, and current strength trainer, powerlifter. And welcome aboard, everybody. Charles Daly here, author of Muscle Logic, creator of Escalating Density Training, and I am a master's category competitive weightlifter. Uh, Phil Stevens, strength coach, uh, power lifter, Highland Games athlete, strongman competitor, founder of LiftForHope.org, and recent uh, Prowler Speed Gilbert champion. This is Pete Lemon. I'm a professor at the University of Western Ontario. Yep. And um, just to talk a little bit about Pete, let me... um, embellish on that. Dr. Lemon, it, we're fortunate to have him on the show with us. He, uh, he's Weeder Research Chair and Professor at UWO, um, Fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine. I think importantly, Dr. Lemon, he's one of the handful of exercise physiology researchers who studied weight trainers and bodybuilders sort of before it was cool. Um, specifically, sports nutrition topics, uh, a lot of listeners might have seen uh, Dr. Lemon's work on protein and resistance training uh, or maybe creatine uh, those fields have had a lot of developmental work done by Dr. Lemon and his uh, list of grad students. Uh, those of you who aren't academic by nature, uh, you still might recognize some of uh, Dr. Lemon's sort of family tree of grad students. Uh, uh, Joey Antonio is a co-founder of the uh, International Society of Sports Nutrition. Uh, Kevin Yurashevsky is a, a highly accomplished, famous researcher. He's done a lot of work with growth hormone and resistance training, among other things. Uh, there are people like uh, Dr. Tim Ziegenfuss, who works in the sports nutrition industry, uh, John Berardi, who owns a, a nutrition and lifestyle coaching company. Uh, so uh, Dr. Lemons had a, a broad influence, I think, both by the data that he's collected and also uh, sort of his, again, academic family tree. So uh, welcome, Dr. Lemon. Thank you very much, Lonnie. Um, I'd like to start off today by just talking to uh, Dr. Lemon a little bit about his specific background, and then the topic of today uh, will be uh, creating and hosting public symposia, whether that's scientific or sort of lay symposia for nutrition and exercise enthusiasts. So we'll we'll get into that in about 20 minutes or so, but first just a few questions about Dr. Lemon specifically. First, the question, and I don't think I've ever asked you this before, but why did you choose sports nutrition and resistance exercise in particular in the first place? Well, I have to have to go way back, uh, Lonnie, but um, as you may know, I was a, a football player in university and a bit of an undersized one. And so I got into strength training uh, back in my athletic days. And shortly after I got involved in that, I started to realize the importance of nutrition um, to the response of the muscle to resistance training. So I really got into this as a as an athlete, and as I pursued it from a scientific standpoint, uh, continued my education and, and began to study it um, 
you know, with controlled experiments uh, as I became a graduate student and eventually a, a faculty member. Actually, that's almost reminiscent. Last week we were talking to uh, an industry guy, Alwyn Cosgrove, and he was he's a Taekwondo athlete, and he was very interested in sports nutrition, at, at first at least, to help his own performance, I think. And uh, I think that's probably a natural draw. Now, you were eventually, you grew quite well, didn't you? I think I remember stories of you saying that you were, at one point, you got yourself up over 200 pounds and was serious. Yeah, I, uh, right around 200, actually. I'm about 165 now, which is what I was in, in high school. And um, I got onto a weightlifting program way back in the in the late 60s when it wasn't too popular and uh, got right around 200. So for a small guy, it wasn't wasn't too bad, at least in those days. Yeah, that's a little bit of street cred for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you was about some of the cool goings-on in your lab at uh, University of Western Ontario there, like what kind of research projects you have going on, uh, stuff like that. We have a series of things going on, and I, I've become interested in – uh, strength exercise, not only for performance, as I uh, was originally, but but more from a health perspective. And, and we've observed a number of positive health benefits. And actually, I, I think that the amount of muscle mass that you have is very critical for uh, your health, especially as you age. So we've been interested in, in studying people of all ages, both men and women, uh, with, with strength training. And recently, we've got into a couple of sort of novel types of training and uh, studying whether nutrition can uh, enhance the response. Two of the the novel types of training that that people may have heard of uh, that we've been studying are sprint interval training and uh, training using whole body vibration. Now, just briefly, sprint interval training um, is essentially as hard as you can possibly exercise for 30 seconds, separated by about four minutes of recovery, and then repeated several times. So it's it's extremely intense interval training. And we found that the intensity of the exercise seems to be the critical response to to adaptation. And, of course, uh, nutrition becomes very important when you're training this hard. So that's one of the novel types of training. The other one, um, whole body vibration, involves um, a vibrating platform that you stand on and do uh, resistance exercises. Um, This can be um, with significant external weights if you're a young, healthy person, or maybe simply uh, body mass if you're an older person. Uh, doing squats, lunges, uh, and so on. Um, there's a number of effects that this type of exercise has, not only on muscle but on bone. And we think that this might be a way in which we can uh, retain muscle and bone mass as you age. And as everybody knows, those are two things that are, are difficult to do, and, and many older people um, lose a significant amount of both muscle and bone mass and, and suffer health uh, adverse health consequences because of it. Right. Now, I'm curious about the vibration. Let me ask you about the vibration thing quickly. Now, one of the ideas there is enhanced neuromuscular activation. Is that right? Yeah, there are a couple of theories as, as to what happens, and that's certainly one of them. We have um, data showing uh, an increased... Uh, 
electrical activity of muscle when you're on the platform with whatever exercise that you're doing. And going along with that, um, any exercise is significantly more difficult on the platform uh, because of this vibration stimulus. You know, for example, you can do a simple experiment where you have someone who's maybe can do 30 push-ups in 30 seconds. And when they try and do that on the platform, they won't even come close to doing that. Hmm. And I've had some um, some bodybuilders, you know, just perplexed as to, you know, what's this machine doing? But it's clearly making the exercise more difficult. Um, your heart rate is higher. Um, with some resistance trained athletes, we've been trying, you know, very heavy weights to see if we can get the same response with a lighter weight than they normally use. Because, of course, when you get these very heavy weights, uh, it's pretty easy to to become injured. Um, so the idea is if um, you're squatting a certain weight, maybe uh, 60% of that uh, might accomplish the same effect uh, when you do it on a vibration platform. And a lot of this that I'm talking about now is speculation, but these are things that we're looking into. Yeah. Hey, Charles, have you have you done any uh, work on, with your clients or anything or yourself on vibration platforms? You know, I haven't, and uh, I, I have heard a lot of anecdotal uh, experiences from colleagues and friends, uh, uh, most of which were in the category of uh, uh, fascinating, I guess is the word I would use. But but, but most of what I've heard about uh, vibration platforms um, from friends and colleagues is that it increases your range of motion very quickly uh, and very significantly. I, I, I have not heard about strength effects. But more in terms of, of stretching. So, uh, but uh, uh, no personal experience. No, it's it's interesting though. Yeah. Charles, yeah. that's that's interesting because we we have noticed a huge change in in flexibility uh, acutely following uh, vibration exercise, and we haven't actually systematically looked at it over time, but it certainly lasts for minutes, if not hours. And this might have some application for some types of athletes who who need to be very flexible in their in their activities. But that's just one of a whole host of responses that we've observed. I mean, we've observed increases in blood flow, increases in muscle temperature, uh, increases in strength and power, um, and these are acutely, uh, immediately following. Uh, but if you were to train systematically, you know, four or five times a week. Um, then you start to get adaptations that may include increases in muscle size and, and bone strength. If uh, if I were designing the research, one thing I would be very interested in would be to do some sort of contrast training where you perhaps perform a squat on the platform and then off of the platform to kind of see if there's some sort of carryover uh, or, or some sort of residual you know benefit uh, I, I think might be interesting as well. But, uh, yeah, that would be that would be very interesting. We we haven't done that with extreme weights, but we have done that with um, with older people, uh, even over the course of a training program uh, as long as six weeks. Um, in other words, having people do a series of of lunges and squats and push-ups um, on the platform when it's not turned on, and in another group, the same exercises with the platform turned on. And uh, there are a number of significant changes uh, in the group that's exercising on the, the platform, including, among other things, uh, uh, increased muscle mass and decreased fat mass. 
And it's mm-hmm. the exercise is exactly the same. The only difference is the platform is turned on or it's turned off. Wow. See, I, I should be a research uh, <laughs> person. Well, another idea here now as well, which would be interesting uh, and, and considerably dangerous uh, potentially, would be to have somebody performing a set of something, and then you you uh, you turn the machine on and off randomly, uh, as you know, if that makes sense in terms of uh, having sort of random and uh, unanticipated, uh, uh, you know, challenges from from the vibration would also be interesting. So yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. One of the things we're interested in, too, is that we think that this is likely to improve balance. And we're in the middle of a study right now with, with older folks who, as you know, um, frequently lose the ability to, um, to maintain balance and, as a result, uh, fall and injure themselves. Um, by working out on the platform, we think that they might be able to regain some of that ability. Uh, to to maintain balance, and uh, I'm, I've seen older people who are literally afraid to leave their home because they might fall down. And if we can uh, if we can improve their ability to maintain balance, then in terms of uh, quality of life for older folks, this this would be a, a great contribution. And so we're doing things besides working with athletes, um, trying to see the benefit of um, some of these novel techniques. Right. Have you done anything nutritional with the vibration uh, investigations? Or um, we're starting that now. We we have done some studies um, with omega three fats um, and found some interesting anabolic effects uh, in terms of both muscle and bone, as well as enhanced fat loss, just with providing um, uh, omega three fatty acids, and so. What we would like to do is combine that sort of supplementation with um, whole body vibration training and study uh, both muscle and bone. And we're, we would like to apply this um, not only to young people, but as I mentioned before, to older people because of the loss of um, uh, both muscle and bone. So if we can make an impact on uh, osteoporosis, for instance, you know, that would be, would be very significant. And, if omega-3 fats increases bone strength by itself in combination with a vibration stimulus, we may get a, a multiplicative effect. Right. Awesome. What was the dose, if, if I can ask, of the omega-3s? Um, the, we've done several human studies where we were ranging in dose from about 300 milligrams to about 1,200 milligrams. And uh, we've also done a couple of studies in rodents um, because, to be honest with you, we, we couldn't believe the results that we were getting, and we thought maybe the individuals were exercising and not telling us. So we repeated it in rodents where, of course, we know exactly what they're doing and what they're eating, and we got very similar changes. That is an increase in muscle and bone mass without any exercise. Wow. Which really surprised us. Yeah. That's extremely cool. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm all over the place too. Like Charles, my mind's kind of turning with with uh, you know, possibilities, <laughs> I, hypotheses I, I, here. <laughs> I'll, 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 Lonnie, I'm envisioning someone on the platform drinking a protein shake and turning themselves into a human blender. This is like what's going on in my brain right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there there is kind of a, a pleasant sensation when you are on this platform, whether you're exercising or just standing on it. 
and this might have to do with uh, the increase in, in blood flow that occurs, but I think it might even involve some uh, responses in the brain, uh, maybe endorphin release. Um, I'm not sure, but we find that people who do this type of exercise are extremely compliant. Um, they don't drop out of our training studies. And if we do treadmill running or biking or rowing or swimming, we always lose subjects over the course of the training program, and we have to really call them on the phone and almost beg them you know, to stay in the study. <laughs> but uh, with the vibration, in half a dozen studies, we've, we haven't lost a single subject, which is just unheard of. And um, there are anecdotal reports from some of the gyms that have these devices where uh, clients will actually wait in line uh, to use a vibration platform when there are other devices there that they could use. So I'm wondering if the, the shaking is, is producing some sort of positive uh, reinforcement in the brain that, that uh, it makes it very enjoyable. Right. Uh, people comment on they really enjoy it. I wonder, maybe there's the flip side of that might be, and Charles, you'll probably snicker about this, but and, and, and Phil and Rob too, but maybe it's that the cardio-type exercises just kind of suck. <laughs> and they're not, they're not as enjoyable as the resistance training in general. I don't know. Well, there's no question the novelty of the vibration is part of it. Um, you know, people are really intrigued. And the vibration itself is an interesting stimulus because some types of vibration are actually harmful. And, and your listeners may have heard of um, individuals who maybe work jackhammers or, or big earth movers and are, are vibrated, um, you know, most of the day in their work. Uh, this can actually cause a lot of adverse health effects. Um, but the vibration that we're using, first of all, uh, is a very different frequency than that and it's intermittent in nature. So this might be a situation where some types of stimuli are actually uh, bad when other types are, are actually good. So you need to be careful that you don't just you know, jump onto this without knowing what you're doing because um, there may be some contraindications to this type of training for some people. Uh, for example, if you had uh, cataracts or partially detached retinas, um, you know, there could be some adverse effects to the vibration. Yeah. So I think this is more a research question now, and we need to iron out all the details before people start, you know, trying it on their own. So we need to make sure that, that we know what we're doing. But having said that, using quite high frequencies and intermittent uh, stimuli, we haven't experienced any problems whatsoever. Um, and we've been looking at cardiovascular effects, at, at renal effects, muscle and bone effects. Um, so right now I'm extremely positive about this, and I'm, I'm hoping that our results will continue to be positive. How heavy have you gone with, with actual weights? I mean, I know one of the ideas would be you could use lighter weights, but what about like trying to get supra-maximal output by using a fairly heavy weight and going you know, even beyond that with the vibration? We haven't actually tried that. Um, we did test the platform that we have is made by a company in Windsor, and one of the nice things about it is is that it um, calibrates itself for your existing body weight. So it's designed to deliver the same stimulus regardless of whether you weigh 100 pounds or uh, 300 pounds. 
And we've actually tested it uh, up to about 800 pounds, and it does deliver the same frequency um, and amplitude with that range of weights. The company says it will actually do that over a thousand. Um, we wanted to have some young athletes, you know, doing squats with with heavy weights, so we tested it up uh, that high, and it was fine. But we've never tried, uh, you know, to get a power lifter and a, and a maximal squat type of thing to see. Uh, um, exactly what would happen. We've been dealing more with um, kinesiology students and a, and a few football players here. Yeah, my I, I actually got on a, a vibration platform once. The university bought one, and I, they're using it mostly for uh, injuries. Apparently, you know, trying to keep mm-hmm. the, the muscle mass and function. I guess of some of the athletes that have certain injuries. But I, I put one thirty-five on the bar. And I had the strength coach help me get up on there because you know it was kind of a strange situation, but it was a it was a very sort of novel and weird experience, you know, for someone who's used to, you know, even the first set of warm up with something that light, it just it felt sort of unwieldy and and just kind of strange. So it's going to be neat to see uh, people starting to use vibration platforms, especially when they start getting more prevalent in gyms and you know, university strength programs and stuff like that and just see the different ways that that they can be used. Now, the research on vibration itself, would you say that's fairly new? Well, it's been around for a while, and reportedly some of the first studies came out of the, the former Soviet Union with the, uh, the early manned space flight. Now, one of the problems, as you know, when you go into microgravity is you, you lose a lot of muscle and bone mass because there's no actual force exerted on the, uh, on the bones. Um, so one of the problems when you come back is you've lost a lot of strength. And uh, they were trying some vibration exercise even back in the 1960s. But in terms of actual study with any significant amount, it was more uh, beginning through the 90s and into even the the 2000s. So it's relatively new. Uh, I'm going to touch on HIIT, the high-intensity interval training, just briefly before I ask you one more uh, question. But now a lot of listeners are are familiar with high-intensity interval work, and I just was curious if you could just maybe explain to them how this uh, anaerobic stimulus, uh, if you will, might have benefits to things like fat loss or how it compares with continuous, you know, lower intensity kinds of uh, endurance exercise? It's a great question, and uh, we asked ourselves exactly that question uh, when we started. You know, how in the heck can this do what it seems to be doing? We did a series of studies um, where we actually measured metabolic rate during and following sprint interval training. And as you can imagine, there's a large anaerobic contribution to the exercise so that what you measure in terms of oxygen consumption is an underestimate. However, um, if you continue to measure into recovery, and we've done this for up to 24 hours following sprint interval training, there is a, a large um, increase or a prolonged increase above resting uh, up to and including 24 hours later so that the the actual um, number of calories expended um, continues long after the exercise is stopped. If any of your listeners try this, um, they will know that they did something 
um, that whole day after they've done it. Unlike if you go in and jog for half an hour, um, if you do that regularly, uh, you come back and three hours later you wonder, did, did I run today? I can't remember. Um, you know, it's the effect is during exercise, and that's about it. Huge increase in um, calories expend during the exercise, but very little afterwards. Sprint interval training is the reverse. Because it's so short, you don't expend many calories during it, but you're recovering from it for a long time, and so your resting metabolism is elevated. Um, and this probably contributes to the fat loss because when we when we calculated the acute effects of 24 hours following sprint interval training, extrapolate that out to a six to eight week training program, we end up with uh, exactly the kind of weight loss that we see in subjects who have completed six weeks of training. And uh, we actually have compared jogging at about 60% of maximum for an hour versus the sprint interval training. And the weight loss is equal to or greater in the sprint interval group than it is in the um, jogging group. And you have to understand that the jogging group is is running for 60 minutes a day, and the sprint interval group is exercising two to three minutes a day. Yeah, wow. So it's a huge difference in terms of time commitment. And uh, we think this might have some implications for the people who say things like, I don't have time to exercise or even for athletes who um, might be able to superimpose this training onto their, their regular training in order to bump their, their fitness level up for, you know, for a key competition. Right. One of my own interests with that would be combining it with, yeah, exactly, other kinds of, of training. Uh, I saw a very interesting paper. There was a substantial increase in, in um, fat oxidative enzymes, you know, the body's ability to burn fat, over a very brief period of training with the interval work. And, I mean, I can see, like, jump-starting, let's say, a dieting phase or something where you're trying to get lean by increasing mitochondrial density or what have you with the interval work and then doing your traditional cardio or weight training along with it. You know, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great idea. And it, when we look at the metabolism during repeat sprint interval bouts, uh, there's a huge increase in uh, metabolism between the two bouts of exercise. So you don't fully recover in the four minutes that you're resting. Um, and the subsequent bout has a large um, endurance component to it because you haven't fully recovered. So there is a large sort of cardio response here or, or metabolic response, even though it is intense and short. And as I mentioned, that, that continues into recovery. So it's, it's an interesting stimulus, and it may be that you don't have to go as hard as we're going. I mean, we've been going as hard as you possibly can for 30 seconds. So in other words, you get on a, a treadmill or a bicycle, and you set the workload really high and you go as hard as you can. Um, over the course of the effort, of course, the work output drops precipitously. In fact, in our hands, it drops to about 50% by the 30-second point. So you're doing about half as intense as you were at the beginning due to fatigue. So there's a huge drop-off in, in power output. Um, but the question becomes, okay, what if you did three-quarters of that? 
uh, would you still get the effect? In other words, is there kind of a a threshold intensity that you must do, and anything above that just just is harder, but really doesn't benefit you anymore. And I'm hoping that's the case because your listeners are probably aware that this type of training is is very difficult. In fact, our subjects um, in the middle of the first training session in the four minute recovery, they're literally lying on the floor moaning and saying things like, "I, I don't think I can do this." But the interesting right. thing is, after the second session, we give them one day to recover and they come back in and repeat it, it's already a lot easier. The The adaptation starts after the first actual session. Wow. And so by the third session, we can actually increase the number of these sprint bouts. We usually start with four and then we go to five and six. Um, and by a couple of weeks... In between the four minutes of recovery, the subjects are joking, um, laughing amongst themselves. It's still hard, but they can tolerate it without any problem. And again, um, every study that we've done in sprint interval work, we ask the subjects at the end of it, the study's over, but if we were continuing, would you be interested in, in continuing the study? And every single one of them has said yes. And that surprised me because I our first study was two weeks long because I didn't think we can get anyone to go any longer than that. Yeah. Um, and, and when they said they, they could, we tried six weeks, and they did six weeks with no problem. We've had some people doing this for three and four months. So it's it's amazing. Um, it, it's very It's a different response than I thought. I thought psychologically it would be very difficult to do, but it, it doesn't seem to be. Yeah. I've been to two different meetings lately, one in the U.S. and one in Canada, and a theme sort of developed in both of them because of the presenters that it feels like intensity rather than duration or some other aspect of exercise seems to be becoming more and more favored in a way. You know, whereas once upon a time it was like, oh, we have to be very cautious or, you know, exercise was even dissuaded. Uh, intense exercise, at least, in a lot of people. And now it seems more and more that that may be arguably, you know, the biggest single ingredient in in successful training would just be the intensity side of things. I couldn't agree more. I think that's exactly correct. And the only thing that concerns me is that most of this work has been with young, healthy people. And we need to be very careful um, prescribing this type of exercise to older people or people who may have some compromised health because we just don't know what it does. Uh, For example, let's say you have someone who has some heart disease and they try this. Um, It's always been our nature to be conservative with that population. It may be that this is the best type of exercise for them, but we just don't have that data yet. Um, There are some individuals in Vancouver that I know who have been doing a form of this um, with cardiac patients and have had great results and, and no problems. However, they're using a much lower intensity than we're using. They're using about 90% of their aerobic capacity. And we're using, as hard as you can go, is probably approaching 200%. So 90% is still hard, but it's considerably less. So my only caution would be um, if you do have some health problems, especially related to the cardiovascular system, that you need to go easy with this. But I I got interested in the idea because when I was out running, um, I just was getting bored silly. So I started to throw in some sprinting. 
And with just a couple of days, I noticed that I felt a lot better. It was more enjoyable. It broke up the runs. I suggested it to my wife, who uh, runs in road races, and uh, she started to do it, and all of a sudden her time started to drop. So there's huge performance effects in races, at least as far as 10K, and that's about as far as we've actually systematically studied. But it's uh, it's very interesting for sure. That's so interesting because from my perspective as a coach, I've, I've long maintained that increased difficulty can increase, uh, you know, compliance and uh, the sense of satisfaction you get from training. And, and, and by difficulty, I mean not only difficulty of effort, but difficulty technically. I just think that... Um, that, that's counterintuitive to, to what the, the, the what the consensus uh, out there would recommend, but uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think more difficulty adds adds to the enjoyment on a lot of levels. Yeah, and the other thing too, when you think about it, is it it's much easier on your body. This this prolonged duration of exercise, you know, causes knee problems, and um, sometimes the body just breaks down and. If you look at cross-country runners or, or marathon runners, they're always having injuries that are really overuse injuries, and uh, their performance, of course, is adversely affected because of that. And I'm not sure I would go so far as to say that long-distance runners can avoid those prolonged efforts entirely, but I think they could cut down on them dramatically and replace them with this kind of intense training and um, not only maintain what they're doing, but probably um, uh, enhance their performance. Right. Okay, well, listen, I've got one more question before we get to the topic of the day about um, creating and hosting symposia. Um, And that is, and this is a hard question, I guess, but what do you think the biggest issues are in sports nutrition? What needs systematic investigation over the next five or ten years? What are some of the biggest questions, especially for weight trainers, since, of course, you know, the audience of this show is resistance athletes. So what are some of the big questions you think that need tackled? I think the the biggest one is this whole timing of, of nutrient intake. Um, as you know, Lonnie, I spent years sort of looking at um, daily protein requirements and uh, I think now what's what's more important than how much of the macronutrients you consume is 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 when and which particular components are most important. So the kind of you know before, during, and after uh, is there, or how long is the window of opportunity, and which specific nutrients signal the adaptive responses. Uh, I think that you know if you weight train, you get a response, even if you're starving. But you can get a much greater response if you actually have the right nutrient mix at the right time. And I think some of the amino acids uh, are really critical in that, uh, much more so than how much you get. Uh, I think most people, it's pretty easy to get enough protein. But whether they get the right mix of amino acids at the right time is what we really need to work on um, to figure that out. And this has implications for athletes, of course, but again, for for older folks uh, who are losing muscle to to gain it back or or not lose it as fast. So that would be my suggestion as the way we need to go. 
Just a reminder for the ironradio.org summer contest and giveaway. It's called Nutrition Stories. Win some very nice university nutrition textbooks and get smarter than your training partner. These are new, colorful, cool textbooks, not dusty old nutritional biochem texts, although some of us like those too. About $50 to $100 value each. We're going to give away at least one in June and one in July. To enter, it's easy. Call Fortress, and for June, we're going to ask that you describe your worst nutritional blunder or experience and what was wrong with it or how you corrected it. You just call 206-203-3798 and leave a voicemail for Rob. Uh, If you'd like it read on air, just give Fortress permission to do so. Uh, Nothing too personal, please. Uh, And he'll read it on the air. At month's end, uh, Fortress will then choose the best story in his subjective opinion. So again, just call 206-203-3798 and tell Rob about your worst nutritional blunder or experience and either what was wrong with it or how you fixed it. Good luck. Okay. Well, I think we, if we're going to answer some questions at the end, we better move on to the topic of the day. Phil, do you got that bumper music? today, I know we have some listeners that are um, adept the trainers themselves and uh, might be interested in hosting events or uh, creating public symposia. I know Charles is definitely no stranger to this. Um, and I just wanted to pick Dr. Lemon's brain about this a little bit because, um, you know, he's successfully created some pretty large both academic and public symposia. And my first question really is, uh, Pete, what goes into that? What are some of the first uh, questions or challenges that need to be made if someone's interested in in hosting their own symposium? Well, first of all, I think it's um, it's very important to do this uh, at the public level because there's so much misinformation out there. The the public beyond the university um, is really looking for authorities to help them understand uh, the answers to some of these questions. So I think it's really important that we do this. Unquestionably, the biggest um, challenge is is getting the word out beyond the university, um, advertising so that the average person knows um, that it's happening. We've been doing this... Um, for the last five years, and the first year we did very little advertising, and we got like 27 people, and I was really disappointed. Um, we stepped up the advertising, and the last few years we've had about 200, but we could probably get a thousand if we were better at advertising, because I get inundated after the fact with people saying they heard about this um, um, after the fact, and. Um, I think if you can contact uh, local TV, uh, radio stations, and and get on there for a little sort of blurb about what's happening, you can reach a lot more people than any sort of flyers and uh, things like that. Our um, our success comes largely from word of mouth because we've we've been doing it for a few years. People have told other people, and so um, we get pretty good turnouts. But getting the word out is is the biggest challenge I find. Uh, 
as long as you have good speakers, uh, the content is going to be really good. The message um, to the audience is going to be accurate. And uh, you just need to make sure people know that it's happening. Right, right. Now, well, I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but you, a couple of times you've, you've mentioned uh, uh, sounds like a specific event. Um, so the growth of what you're talking about with your public symposium, maybe let's just talk about that, some specifics about that. If you can just share, like, you know, what the title of it. Uh, of course, I, I know it's hosted at UWO and sort of your mission with that um, because there's a fundraising mission, right? Yes, we um, we started this actually without the fundraising mission, but um, in the second year, I got involved with the uh, women's athletic program at uh, at Western, and they were considerably underfunded, and so we thought if we could get people to donate their time, uh, speakers, and and get the room at no cost through the university and things like that, we might be able to raise some money. Um, so. Uh, we raise um, about $6,000 just in, in um, registration fees for this. And because there is no cost, um, that money all goes to the athletic program. So uh, I have to lean on friends like, like yourself to come up and, and speak um, without any speaker fees so that, that we can do that. But the other thing that um, we're trying this year is we we audio tape the, the sessions, and after getting permission from the speakers, uh, we're going to make that available on a website with their PowerPoint lectures so that we can um, communicate with people beyond the immediate area. And we got the idea to do that simply because uh, once we got the website up, we started to get contacted by people you know all over the world. Um, and, you know, if you're in California, you're unlikely to be coming to uh, Southern Ontario for a conference. But they asked about some of the material. So right now, actually, uh, we've been synchronizing the audio with the uh, slides, and uh, we hope to make that available on the, on the website for some small charge, which um, will go to the athletic program as well. Right. So it it is a way to raise money and to um, help educate the community all at one time. And um, my philosophy has always been to keep the prices very low because I don't want anyone to go away saying, well, that was really good, but it was too expensive. And I want them to go away saying it was really good and it was really inexpensive. So, um, you know, we could probably charge double what we do, make more money, but the mission is not just to make money. The mission is to communicate the message. And I want to make sure that we have uh, a lot of people there every year. Right. Now, just for listeners, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's exercisenutritionsymposium.com, all one word, right? That's correct. Exercisenutritionsymposium.com. I don't think there's a www in that address. Um, but I could be wrong. There. Yeah, I think you need you need to do www at the beginning, I think, but Hmm. Okay. Uh, uh, I wanted to ask you something specifically, too. You, you said, you know, the advertising is so important. The first thing that jumps into my mind is how far in advance are you setting up speakers? Are you trying to advertise? I mean, obviously, you need to set up some level of the program and the speakers before you start to advertise. But how far in advance do you do that? That's a great question, and, and we've gotten a lot better at this Um we start as far in advance as possible. I guess that's the best way to do it. We're already thinking now about dates for next year. 
the first couple of years we did this, you know, a month or so before. And of course, what happens is um, people who would like to come have commitments. Speakers that you want to get are already committed. Um, I would suggest starting at least six months. And if you can start a year in advance, it's it's even better. You know, establishing the date, uh, at least the major speakers and the topics. We'll have some information up on the website uh, quite soon for next year um, because we're we're trying to nail that all down, and it makes things a lot easier. You know, if you have sponsors and so on, it gives them time to decide. Uh, sometimes um, corporations need an extended period of time to evaluate a proposal as to whether they're going to sponsor or not, and, and we do have a number of sponsors for this as well. But very few of these things happen the first year. Um, it just kind of has gotten a little bigger every year and a little bit better as we've learned from uh, our mistakes, and uh, hopefully now it's, um, it's uh, done pretty well. Right. Now, here's a question. Uh, this is something that I've uh, sort of discussed and struggled with a little before, and, and Charles, you can chime in here too for sure, but what are your thoughts on broad subject matter versus something very specific and thematic for this kind of thing? Would you go with a theme like obesity or you know, weight gain for powerlifters or something, or, or would you keep it uh, more broad? We have gone pretty broad uh, up until this point, but that's an issue that we talked about uh, this year. We had a number of um, bodybuilder powerlifters who asked us some very specific questions on the symposium this year, which was um, it was entitled Body Transformation Do's and Don'ts. So we covered a little bit about, uh, of course, strength training, but it, it had messages for the general population. And what we're thinking about next year uh, is actually setting up some um, specific sessions that are running simultaneously so that we maybe have uh, some general talks that everybody would be at, but then there'll be some overlap of um, two or three specific areas. So if you've got several hundred people, you know, maybe you end up with about 70 in each one of these three groups for the more specialized ones. We tried it on a, sort of an introductory level this time, um, and it seemed to work pretty well. And there's there's quite a bit of positive feedback about it. So I think we're going to expand that aspect so that um, you'll, you'll get the specific as well as the general. Right. No, I think that's a great idea. It almost sounds like something that might be Maybe not the first year because there'd there'd be a certain requirement for attendees, right? Right. I mean, in just gross numbers. I mean, it'd be hard to have breakout sessions if there were the you know 28 people there or something. But yeah, that's. I think that's a great way to address that. Actually, see, that's why I talked to you. (laughs) What What you want to do is you want to appeal to to a lot of people, and if you are more general, of course, you appeal to more people. Um, However. Um, you can't do everything just in a general way. You've got to get some specific information for those who are interested. So we're trying to do sort of the best of both worlds, and it's it's difficult. But uh, I think based on what we did this year, it's possible. Okay. Yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, well, once again, uh, uh, to listeners, we're talking with Dr. Peter Lemon, 
who is not only a world-recognized researcher on issues like protein and resistance exercise or different training modalities, uh, recently fish oil uh, kinds of interventions, but also about creating and hosting uh, public symposia as both a way to earn money and, and educate the public. Um, Dr. Lemon, is there anything else that you'd like to share about the, uh, the uh, Exercise Nutrition Symposium uh, that we haven't covered? Uh, I don't think, uh, I think you've covered most of it. Okay. Uh, if, if that's the case, uh, Phil, if, do you have some questions coming in? We could just do some questions. Yeah, I'm going to try this first one. I don't know if it's going to work because it's going to kind of, um, uh, Dr. Lemon's going to have to be, I think, um, versed in the study that the guy's asking a question about. We'll see. Um, Sean Casey in Cuba City, Wisconsin. Um, first off, Dr. Lemon, I love reading your research regarding protein, human performance, etc. Curious, uh, an interesting study, see below, completed by researchers at McMaster University, looked at the dose response of albumin protein, muscle protein synthesis, following resistance training sessions. I was curious what your thoughts, opinions are regarding this study, although it hasn't been studied yet. To my knowledge, do you think similar results would have been found if using a different type of protein way, etc.? Thanks for your time, Sean Casey Moore, DR, Robinson, MJ, Illinois, blah, blah, blah. Um, and a bunch of other people that did this study, ingested protein dose response of muscle and albumin protein synthesis after resistance training. I'm trying to recall which study that is. Is that the one that suggested that uh, about 20 grams per intake uh, maximally stimulated protein synthesis? Is that yes. the one Sean's referring to? Yep. You know what? I've got it here in front of me somewhere. I'm looking for it right now. <laughs> um it, it is an interesting study, and, and one of the problems I have with studies like that is that muscle growth is a function of not just protein synthesis, but protein degradation. And so you can't really look at just synthesis by itself. Um, if you think in terms of only being able to take 20 grams at an intake, it would be pretty hard to consume very much protein, uh, even if you were consuming it multiple times during the day. Um, so it's an interesting study, and, and the question has been debated for years as to how much can you actually assimilate uh, you know, at one particular time. Um, I'm not sure that any particular type of protein is ideal. I think we really need a, um, a combination of different types of protein. And this is based on the fact that usually the body will adapt to whatever you're doing. And if you're consuming only one type of protein, um, the benefit of it is probably going to be diminished over time. So I always recommend um, different types of protein. Certainly whey is a very good protein. Casein is a very good protein. Egg protein is very good. Um, I just think that we need a mixture. You need to mix it up a little bit. Um, relative to the the absolute amount of protein at, at one particular sitting that's that's beneficial, uh, I'm not sure what that number is, and I'm not sure that if you just make protein synthetic measures, you can answer the question, because you you could have changes in degradation that would counterbalance whatever the effect you had on synthesis. So you need to make both of those measures simultaneously. And, and the best way to do it is over a chronic period of time 
Um, if you measure chronically and you get an increase in muscle mass, then obviously synthesis is sufficient to counteract the, the degradation. Those studies are hard to do, though, because you have to do it uh, over about six weeks minimum to be able to actually document the changes. So I apologize, kind of a long-winded answer. You know what, Phil, let me just clarify here. I got the paper in front of me. It's, it's the Moore paper. Uh, it's from Stu Phillips' lab there. Um, it, yeah, it is the 20-gram sort of optimal dose uh, paper. One of the things that the first thing I looked at in that study was how big are these individuals? Because 20 grams is just sort of a gross number. And they're 190-pound guys, roughly. So, you know, it's not like... Uh, you know, they're small guys, and the 20-gram dose will suffice only for small guys. 20 grams seem to be, you know, important, at least on the protein synthetic side. So it will be it will be cool to see the different protein types and whether or not the dose slightly moves upward or downward, you know, because of the specific amino acid profile in the different proteins. I know me and Charles are still waiting for one to be done on bacon's protein. Bacon? <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's not be too critical of pork. They're one of our symposium sponsors, and, and no, there's a lot of good things about pork. No, we, we love, love pork. Yeah. Hey, no, I'm these guys love it. They, these guys love it, Pete. They're not down on it at all. <laughs> Do, Dr. Lemon, we're, we're getting short on time, but I had a question that I'm dying to ask you because I'm 50 years old, and I'm still a very uh, you know, passionate, uh, competitive athlete. So I want to know at age 50, what are my protein needs relative to when I was 20? meaning uh, amount, type, timing, just any thoughts you might have? I think for the most part they're, they're similar. Um, there's even some data suggesting that as we age, uh, protein needs actually increase. Um, I'm not sure that we have enough data to really respond to that question, but as you know, most North Americans consume a fair amount of protein in their diet anyway. Uh, when we do surveys of, of university students, um, most people are consuming about a gram and a half to two grams of protein per kilogram of, of body mass. And most of the requirement studies would, would indicate that that would be sufficient, uh, although I certainly know bodybuilders who are consuming three, four, maybe even five grams per kg. Um, on the other side of that, you know, people are always saying, well, what about all the problems when you go to high intakes? And uh, I think those are largely overstated. Um, at least when you're in the range of two, two and a half grams per kg, there's no evidence that I've seen that that's, that will cause any problems whatsoever, uh, assuming that you have normal kidney function. Uh, we've never seen any problem in older bodybuilders, and, and I've studied bodybuilders into their 70s, um, they don't seem to have any um, renal problems any greater than uh, other 70-year-olds. And you would expect if high-protein diets caused renal problems, uh, you would see that in that population because for years those individuals have consumed large amounts of, of protein. Right. So I would say probably um, about the same as, as you needed when you were 20. Good stuff. Which is, because that's the next question, how much protein is necessary for weight trainers? Um, you mean absolute per day or relative per day? Yeah, how much is um, too much, how much? 
Well, um, I would say probably um, without the use of any anabolic agents, somewhere in the range of about one and a half to two grams per day per, per kilogram per day is, is sufficient. Um, I have seen some benefits going slightly over that, uh, up into the two and a half to three grams per kg per day, anecdotally. But in our studies, we've never been able to show any advantage to that. It might be something that takes years of training to be able to benefit from larger amounts. And our, our lab studies usually are on the order of a couple of months in duration because yeah. it's just very difficult to keep people together longer than that. So the unanswered question is, what happens when you're training for years as opposed to months? And, of course, most of your listeners are, are in the category of training for years, not, not months. And so we, we just don't have much data in, in that population. Gotcha. Uh, that's, uh, that's all we got right now. Okay. Sure. I'm going to throw in one last little tidbit of information because when I was looking at that uh, Moore paper, just now I stumbled across this too. Uh, one of the interesting things about protein intake, and I, again, I, I know that Dr. Lemon's research goes way beyond just protein and resistance training, but um, this is some NHANES data from at least I, from the U.S. here, uh, and it says 42% of our proteins from the, in the average population come from meat, poultry, and fish, 20% from dairy, 18% from grains, only 4% from eggs, and then a little bit from other groups, uh, you know, vegetables, legumes, stuff like that. So we're big on the meat side of things. And I do think it will be fun to look at timing and type, you know, because I'm not sure that uh, bodybuilders and powerlifters who eat huge amounts of protein, it's all from, uh, you know, meat or eggs. I think there might be a disproportionate contribution from the dairy proteins because of the supplements. So, you know, just just some numbers there for everybody. Okay. Uh, well, that's all I have. Uh, if that's all we've got from the, the listeners, then I yeah. just want to thank thank Pete once again fifty times for being on the show. It's it's uh, it's good to have academics on the show. Uh, we have a lot of professionals and coaches and even athletes, but it's good to get sort of the the scientific side and especially someone with a little bit of street cred like Dr. Lemon has. So thanks again for being on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to come and share some of this information. And and, gosh and knows I'm talked out, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Poor Rob. <laughs> you know what? you gotta, you got to know when it's time to shut up. And in the presence yep. of some yeah. Dr. Lemon, I'm just pretty much shutting up. But uh, I certainly enjoyed you on the show, Dr. Lemon. I've certainly heard a lot about you over the years. So. Thanks very much, Rob. Okay. So one last time, um, we have uh, – Dr. Lemon, and he just shared with us some valuable information, not just about research, but about uh, his symposium. And just one more time, Dr. Lemon, what's what's the web address for that? Uh, Exercise Nutrition Symposium, all one word, dot com. Great. So please check it out. I think this is an event that's going to grow in in future years like it has in the past. Um, the website will be your connection, not just to speakers there in the past, and they've had uh, Dr. Lemon's had great speakers there, Graham Thomas, uh, John Berardi. There's been a lot of people who, who speak there on a variety of topics. It'd really be uh, worth attending if you're within driving distance or you know, even if you want to fly, if it's that important. There's going to be a lot of um, good to be done, a lot of stuff to be learned, and it's a great event. So if listeners are uh, interested, then I would highly recommend that. So, yes. 
Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Lemon. I had one more thing to add. Um, just for Lift for Hope, uh, I just want to tell everybody that T-shirts are in. Um, I'd love for you guys all to go to liftforhope.org. That's L-I-F-T, the number four, H-O-P-E dot org. Hit the Add to Cart button, uh, buy a T-shirt, and support a great event and some great strength athletes. Good. More fundraising stuff. Sweet. Oh, and that reminds me. Let me squeeze in one last thing. Is We're doing the summer uh, nutrition uh, contest. Uh, all you have to do is contact uh, Rob uh, with a nutrition a story of a nutrition blunder that you've made in the past, what was wrong with it, and how you corrected it. There's more information on our Iron Radio listeners' Facebook page. Uh, so please get those in. Uh, it, there's really no right or wrong answer. Just tell Rob an interesting story. Give him permission to uh, play it on the air if that's what you want. And there's some cool nutrition textbooks to be won. So yeah, June is winding down fast. So squeeze in this month. There will be a different question in July. Yeah, the number is... 206-203-3798, 206-203-3798. And as Lonnie says, there's no right or wrong answer, so fire those off to me and uh, some cool prizes to be had. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks Thank a lot. Great Thanks, Dr. Lemon. Thanks a lot. Bye now. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like Iron Radio, if you like what we do, uh, the education, interviewing uh, industry personalities or many of the pro bodybuilders or coaches that we've had in the past, uh, please just click on the donate button at www.ironradio.org and make a donation. We've had some great donations from people that have kept us going. Thank you so much. Uh, so please visit uh, the website, click on the donation button, or if you like, uh, and it's a similar situation, buy some Iron Radio cool stuff. We've got t-shirts and mugs and things like that, and those things help support the site and keep us on the air. Take care. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.